Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I cease pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020. Vision. So it's the number one seed, New England Patriots, Dave, after Monday night's big win. Three passes thrown. Wow, that was just a a pretty amazing, amazingly boring but amazing victory. Uh, I, I think that uh, yeah, it was. As someone was saying it was really funny to to watch how many commercials they tried to kind of stuff in there, you know, to get all their primetime uh, dollars because the game was just going too fast and uh, all that ground game stuff. Uh, so probably not exactly what uh, what they were looking for, but but smart given uh, given the Patriots' set of running backs and uh, and the way their defense is playing right now. So I uh, I think I'm, I'm I'm feeling good about my futures bet uh, on the Patriots. I I I'd got it at thirty to one, and now they're um, six point five to one odds to to win the Super Bowl. And I, the other thing I saw is that. The most likely Super Bowl matchup right now, the Buccaneers and the Patriots. And can you imagine? Imagine that. That would be um, that would be incredible. So, yeah, yeah. No, I mean clearly Belichick is not happy about all the headlines after last year's Brady victory, saying, "Oh, I guess it was Brady after all." And uh, you know, all the talk. This is his greatest season as a head coach. I mean, it's just another demonstration of how adaptable he is and his game plans are compared to so many other teams who just, you know, they, they might tweak the last five or 10% of the game plan week to week. But I mean, Belichick seems willing to just start from scratch and, mm-hmm. you know, 46 runs, three passes, uh, unbelievable. I, I enjoyed all the, the, the conspiracy theorists who noticed after the fact that, that he was wearing a Navy face mask, and, you know, naturally, given his connections to Navy and it's Army-Navy game week, we'll talk about that later in the show, that would be enough to explain it. But, of course, with Belichick, it's never that simple. And everyone thinks, oh, maybe he was signaling his game plan. And he was telling everybody before the game, you know, watch out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run like Navy does and, and pass as often as Navy passes. Doubtful, uh, given the way he likes to hold things close to the vest, but wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of sly humor in, involved in it. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't put it past him. I think that yeah, I think there may be <laughs> maybe something there. So I, I so I think there's there's something to the conspiracy thought. He's his little smirk, you know. I, I think right. that uh, yeah, all good. Well, uh, it's uh, everyone's bunched up in that AFC, and and everyone's bunched up really across the league. So. I think it's going to be an interesting last four weeks of the season and then a playoff. So I think that um, and in one way, having home field advantage would be great for the Patriots. But if you do get a windy day 
in New England, you kind of wonder whether you can run your way to a Super Bowl victory, uh, given you know Mac Jones' limitations as a as kind of a strong armed passer. So yeah, we'll see. But uh, feels good right now to be nine and four and uh, number one seed. All right. Well, let's turn to our required reading. We are moving along in Aristotle's Politics, Book Four. Today, we're looking at chapters four through six. Yeah. So in chapter four, he's going to write on the different types of democracy. Uh, chapter five, he's going to write on the different types of oligarchy. And then on chapter six, he's going to talk about what I would say is the material aspect of, of both of these regimes, that, that there is a uh, there is an ideational uh, definition for the regimes in a way that they operate uh, ideationally. But then there also is that uh, material uh, impact or that impact that ma- material factors, um, what type of professions you have and all the rest uh, affect uh, your politics, affect uh, your constitutions. So let's start out with, with chapter four and what he has to say about the different uh, types uh, of democracy. Note here, and I think we, we had said something about this in a previous show, that when you're reading Aristotle on democracy, you have to keep in mind his predecessor, Plato, and, and what Plato has Socrates say in the Republic about democracy. There, the best regime is created. It's a city in speech by Socrates. That city is ruled by philosophers. It's defended by guardians and the multitude uh, produces and consumes. So one man, one art, each part doing their job. That's perfection, but that perfection falls apart. That regime becomes a a regime ruled by soldiers, uh, then a regime ruled by the wealthy, uh, a regime ruled by uh, the many who love their freedom and equality. uh, And finally, that uh, dissolves into a tyranny. So Plato's assessment of Democracy is that type of regime where the excess of freedom and equality tends toward the rule of the tyrant. Aristotle here is different. Aristotle is going to suggest that uh, there is something about democracy uh, that can have um, a have an excellent uh, aspect on, on politics, and, and that is primarily when freedom is understood and earned and respected uh, by the multitude and that respect for freedom is shown in the adherence to the law. So oddly enough, the, the best democracy, the freest democracy is the democracy that has a moral foundation in the law. And all other types of democracies move further and further away from that legal basis of, of freedom and equality. So yes, you can have a democracy that functions well, but the people need to be free and they need to have a standard of equality and that standard of equality needs to be upheld by lawfulness. What do you make of Aristotle's assessment of the best type of democracy versus what Socrates would have said is the tendency of democracy in in the Republic? Well, I think what you see are really two sides of of a democratic people. Uh, On the one hand, uh, a well-disciplined, virtuous people will embrace the law, will recognize that it's a salutary restraint that the law imposes upon them, that it, that's good. It's good for them individually. It's good for the majority, which tomorrow may be the minority. Uh, it's good for the community as a whole, as, as all find that there's a reason for them to buy in to the regime because their, their, their fundamental interests and rights are protected, whether they win the election or they lose the election, whether they're the policy they like or the policy they dislike is adopted. So, you know, all that 
is, is something that we, we see in the best sorts of popular regimes. This is very similar to the founders' understanding of republicanism and how you would organize an American republic in a way that would allow it to transcend the historic problems of faction. But now we talk about faction, and, and that leads us to Plato, right? which when a, a democratic people begins to free itself from those restraints, begins to demand what it wants because it wants it, is governed by its passions rather than by its reason, we get just the kind of thing that Plato describes. I mean, you can you can read book eight description of democracy and and the way people talk about uh, equality and you know no no life or no lifestyle uh, to be criticized and all these kind of things and, and and find easy parallels to our contemporary conversation. And so I think what you have in Aristotle is an aspirational account of, of what democracy could be. And you have in Plato, um, uh, obviously, a more negative account that, that reveals the impulses that are, that are all too often embedded, at least in a democratic people that's, that's drifted away from, let's say, in the American context, the Christian foundations and, and natural order of things that, that restrained the American people at an earlier point in our history. It's interesting, though, that when Aristotle, I, I, I agree with you, that his, his view of democracy reads aspirational. But there's also, I think, an argument that he's making here that it goes back to the beginning of our coverage of the politics, where if we are political animals, we have the tools as political animals, if we employ them, to be able to live lawfully, to recognize what the law is, and to abide by that law. And here, here he counters uh, the Republic and counters Socrates' assessment of politics in the Republic by turning to this example of, of, of what Socrates says is the, the first city or the city of pigs. And, and Socrates says, well, if you had the first city, the kind of the most uh, basic city, that city would be made up of a, a weaver, a husbandman, a shoemaker, and a builder. I mean, those are four of the five things that you wanted to be in, in, in life, Matt, other than a teacher of politics, weaver, yeah. husbandman, shoemaker, and builder. But that's the, that's the city of pigs. And what Aristotle says is, well, actually, no, there, there are more than those four types of people, because in addition to those four types of people, in addition to kind of satisfying the necessaries of life, uh, there's also um, an individual who dispenses justice and determines what is just. So there's, there must be an individual, even at the beginning, who is adjudicating different claims uh, by people, who is kind of um, noting kind of what, what is right and wrong. Uh, and then Aristotle goes on to um, um, add other elements to this, the beginning of the city. I think, I think what he's arguing here is we as human beings have a lot more to work with at the beginning uh, then Socrates gives us credit for. And perhaps because of that, we can think about democracy uh, as, asp and, and we can think about democracy in aspirational terms. We can think about democracy functioning well as an empire of law. But I love that you note here, right, that if, if you were looking at American democracy at the beginning of the 21st century, and you had to read Aristotle and you had to read, you had to read Plato, you'd probably say, oh, oh my goodness, Plato is so much more on the mark now. Yeah. So it's almost like the American Republic 
reads well in terms of assessments of democracy from an Aristotelian standpoint at the founding and a platonic standpoint at the current time. Yeah, certainly in terms of the principles of the founding and, you know, the practice was was certainly more mixed um, than than the principles were. But but what you had was a clear eyed account of what it was going to take in order to achieve the goals of the republic. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have today, and this gets another aspect of what Aristotle is talking about in chapter four, is in political leadership. So, I mean, the, the, the people that are writing the Federalist essays and the Declaration of Independence and other important documents that lay out the theory, then end up filling offices. You know, they become <laughs> presidents and secretaries of the treasury and secretaries of state and, and all these positions. And so they, they, they take that theory and then they, they begin to operationalize it. They don't always have perfect success in doing that, but, but the point is that they're individuals who are concerned about these things are then elevated to the positions where they have the opportunity to lead the people in that way. And of course, imperfectly with their own faults and, and the faults of, of, of their generation, but, but there's at least an effort to do that. And the challenge we have today, you know, and Aristotle distinguishes between what we would call the, the statesman and the demagogue, we have a system where, you know, are we elevating statesmen who, who have that account of a right ordered political regime in mind, who, who want democracy to be this, this best version of itself where the laws rule, are we elevating those type of people to political office or are we elevating people that want to indulge the passions of, of the multitude? In which case that kind of restraint that might otherwise be imposed by the rhetoric of a good leader and, and the traditions and, and, and laws and customs of a democratic people, all that restraint begins to break down because there's, there's no effort to articulate the reasons behind it or to give an account of democracy that's not just this kind of relativized version we get in Plato, right? where whatever you want is good enough, whatever the majority desires, that, that's fine. There's, there's very little effort today to make moral arguments, even about decidedly moral things, you know, is one of the striking features of the recent debates before the Supreme Court over Roe versus Wade and in the context of the Mississippi law, um, that, that the lawyer arguing in favor of that law was really pulling his punches when it came to making moral claims about why abortion ought to be banned and, and talking about tradition and looking back at, at, at the, the laws at the time of the 14th Amendment but, but not really wanting to make a moral case on a question that is everyone recognizes is a moral question. But we're so reticent to bring that into the public square and, and almost think it's illegitimate to make moral arguments concerning the law when if the law is not grounded in morality, all it is is just arbitrary force. Yeah, and I think that that morality for Aristotle, for democracy, the, the moral principle of democracy is equality rightly understood. Right. It, yep. It's a regime that's based strictly on equality where the equality isn't made to be something that it's not either. It's, it's kind of held together by by common sense. And he's going to suggest, right, that we should have that common sense to know what equality is and what it isn't. But when equality, instead of being kind of a common sense principle, grounded principle, becomes um ideological, either kind of ideological on the right, kind of in the uh, kind of crazier forms of, of populism that tend towards nativism, 
or an ideology on the left, uh, which is kind of egalitarianism to the point where you can't distinguish between one thing or another. You can't say A is A or B is B is, or two plus two is four. Um, then, then those two um, ideolo- ideological redefinitions of equality tend, as you say, uh, not towards the statesman, but towards the demagogue, because the demagogue simply has to speak that ideological language to, uh, to his people, uh, to her people. Right. And, uh, and I think that's what we have. We have you know, a, a lot of flattering that goes on rather than trying to kind of think through what equality rightly understood means, how it's applied in different contexts, and granting to the other that you're debating with that perhaps your definition of equality rightly understood in this policy matter or that policy matter may have some merits. And that, you know, that if, if an ar- a good argument is going to be made, it has to be made on that basis. Yep. Um, it, can't, it can't be made on simply trying to kind of win over the moment. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So in part five, he turns to the different types of oligarchy. So much as a democracy can be rightly ordered uh, if it's grounded in, in the moral principle of, of equality and, and is upheld by the law, likewise, um, oligarchies are better when they're more lawful oligarchies and they're worse. Uh, they become more corrupt forms uh, when uh, a different uh, standard is applied to distinguish between one group and another. So here he'll, he'll tell us that the best type of, of oligarchy is one in which, okay, there's a property requirement, but that property requirement is attainable uh, by some who may not have been a part um, of, of, of the ruling class. So either through education, either through talent, hard work, uh, you can work your way up to be one of the few that is ruling. But as you move away from that best type of oligarchy, what you're seeing is lesser and lesser opportunity to make your way into that ruling class to the point where the worst type of um, oligarchy that Aristotle describes here is the dynastic oligarchy, where you're simple. The fact that you were born uh, into a family and you have that blood uh, means that you ought to, to rule thereafter. So there's no way that anyone else who was outside of that family would have any access to the regime itself. So here there's, there's a similarity between the standard of, of equality uh, that justly aligns democracy and the, the standard of merit that can justly align oligarchy. And there's, there seems to be a point where that best type of democracy and best type of oligarchy might meet. And I always think that the kind of the meeting point or intersection point uh, between both of these things is, is a type of liberality toward another. So the, the best type of democracy um, is you know, liberal in the right sense of the word democracy and the best type of oligarchy is the same. Uh, they become their best when they're both um, liberal in the right sense of the word and lawful. Yeah, I think the idea of opportunity is, is a really important one in this context, because if you know, think back to a couple of colonial models that were attempted you know, 100 years before America was founded. So in Pennsylvania, under William Penn, you had a situation where there was a relatively modest property requirement if you wanted to vote. But if you were an indentured servant, when you finished your time, your seven years as a servant, you were actually given that amount of property. And if you cultivated it, if you were willing to work it and, and not just own it in the abstract, but actually make something of it, 
then you were almost immediately qualified to be a full participant in political life. Um, now you can contrast that, what went on in Carolina, uh, a constitution that was authored primarily by, by, by the philosopher John Locke, where you have this strictly hereditary set of offices. And he even makes up you know, new noble titles in order to fill this out. And every person in those offices is there because of their family line. And in fact, you're not even allowed to sell after a certain period of time. It has to descend to your, your next relative in your line. So that hereditary principle, which really is, is what is so corrupting often in oligarchies, where there's no way to get in, uh, except perhaps through marriage, if you're able to angle correctly, um, compared to a system where there's kind of a striving that's, that's encouraged Right. And, and a William Penn's type of Pennsylvania, you know, you can see how a, a moderately defined oligarchy could have some attractive features in encouraging industry and effort and people to buy into the regime as they as they desire to participate politically in it. Well, that transitions nicely into part six of, of this discussion after going through the, the different types of democracy and the different types of oligarchy. Aristotle will talk about the material circumstances that would best be suitable for that better type of, of democracy um, and better type of, of oligarchy. You'll be more likely to have a better regime if you have individuals in a democracy who are working. Uh, and you know, here you go back to the end of the 18th century, well, actually quite the 17th and 18th century in America, most people, 98% of them were farming. They had the provisions to be able to survive. Uh, they had a moderate amount of, of property, but they also had time and they had interest in ruling uh, and in being an active citizenry. It, it's interesting when you kind of read through Aristotle here on what are the what's what's the best context for democracy, and then you move forward to the year 2021, and there aren't that many people farming. Uh, there are a lot more people who are kind of working in consumer services. Uh, there's a lot greater emphasis on the consumptive side uh, of our affairs rather than the productive side, because, because of mass industry, a lot of things can be mass produced. So individually, uh, we're doing a lot less in terms of providing for our own self-sufficiency and the food to grow and then all the rest. And, and there's an economy to that, but also there's a change in character that happens when we are less productive. So you wonder whether, whether we're really in a, in a bind now because of just our lifestyle and how our lifestyle goes into uh, making it more difficult for, for democracy to operate well. Never mind that, uh, what I'll call a Gatsbyan democracy where we're showcasing uh, when we're buying and purchasing things. It's not simply we're trying to tend toward our necessities. We're trying to brand ourselves out there uh, in, in the public. We have yeah. a certain type of car, a certain type of house, certain indicators of, of success. So a lot of our economic activity is meant to create an image as much as it is to, to satisfy a need. And, and that too is, is dangerous, right? Because um, the, the image then becomes more important than, um, than the reality itself. I think, you know, you uh, heard a great devotion this morning by one of our grammar school uh, professors, and he, he mentioned that 
you know, you think about the spectacle of Christmas and putting Christmas lights up and what are those lights meant to be? Are those lights meant to represent the Advent season and the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or, or are they just up there just to kind of represent a spectacle where you can kind of have the great design outside your house and, and kind of win the competition in the neighborhood? So is it about you or is it about the season? And you think about so many aspects of life now where the, the truth of, of what the thing ought to be is clouded by um, our, our misperception of it and, um, and misappropriation, I think, of, of, of economics, of our way of life, of our professions, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, we could so easily do a great study of the theology of, of light in the Bible, right? From the very opening words of Genesis and think about Jesus at the beginning of John's gospel, the light of the world. And so you know, the lights on your Christmas tree or outside your house could represent that, right? <laughs> that could be the image that you're working toward and, and trying to represent in, in, in a certain way. Or like you say, you could be trying to compete with the neighbor next door or the one across the street or, or be the one that everybody you know, as they drive by, pauses in front of your house in order to gawk and admire. Great. So from Aristotle to Christmas lights, we, we, we got there. <laughs> Covered the ground. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> got to make a little seasonal application if we can. So we're going to wrap up the show this week with the crystal ball. And I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, the Army-Navy game and Bill Belichick's perhaps nod in that direction with the Navy face mask that he wore before the game on Monday night with the Patriots and the Bills. Uh, we want to make our picks for that game and then also for the college football playoffs because after next week's show, we're going to take a few weeks off for the Christmas season. We noticed last year nobody listened anyway, so <laughs> we're going to take a break while you take a break from listening. Army-Navy game. Army comes in at 8-3. and three. Navy, after a difficult year, a number of close losses is 3-8. and eight. So not surprising, the Army is the seven-point favorite. Uh, we talked about the Commander-in-Chief trophy last week. If Army wins, uh, they will retain the Commander-in-Chief trophy, win it for the second straight year, and the fourth time in five years. They're actually, of, of the three schools, they've won it the least number of times. It's only been around for about 50 years, uh, but uh, they've been on a roll recently. Now, if Navy wins, we get a three-way tie. And we talked last week about how, under the standard rules, that would mean Army would retain the trophy because they won it last year. But uh, you suggested last week, I think what we can call the Corbin rules for the Commander-in-Chief Trophy, where we would look at the point differential. And in that case, if Navy wins, then Air Force would actually be the winner with a net uh, of plus 13 point differential, unless Navy beats Army by more than 33 points. So that's what we're going to root for, at least in the Parks household. A 34-point win over Army that would at least, under Corbin rules, earn Navy the Commander-in-Chief's trophy. So, Dave, what what do you what do you predict? Well, I really like that rule. I mean, not just because it's my rule, but I think you know it's a really good. There's not much Europeanization of things that improve things, but the <laughs> yeah. Europeanization of the Commander-in-Chief trophy, I think, is a uh, is something that we ought to really God they ought to consider. We need to get that uh, before uh, the joint chiefs of staff, uh, uh, person. So, uh, um, right. okay. So anyway, I, 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 bad news. I do not believe that Navy is going to win by more than 33 points. So I'm going to give, um, 
I'm going to give Army the win. I think it'll be closer uh, than than people expect, given their different records. So I'm going to say that the game is going to make its way down to the final uh, series one way or another. But I I say Army takes it and and takes the Commander in Chief trophy outright. Okay. All right. Well, you won't be popular uh, in the Parks household, uh, either the Pennsylvania version or the New York version this week, but I'm going to pick the Navy win. I'm going to say 14-13, which will be difficult to watch. <laughs> Stressful, no doubt, to the end, but um, I think Navy can squeak it out, you know, maybe a couple of field goals where Army gets deep in the Navy territory, but they hold them when they might have otherwise scored a touchdown, and Navy, and Navy pulls it off. So, so here's a question for a Navy household. Would it be better to have a losing record yet beat Army in this game or a winning record and lose to Army in this game? No, that's a good question, and the answer is easy. Uh, it's, it's better to be 0-10, 0-11 the game and beat Army than to be 10-0 or 11-0 and lose to Army. So it's, it's as simple as that. Uh, yeah. this, this is the whole season. So fair uh, enough. Four and eight will be a great year if it ends, as I'm predicting, with a 14-13 Navy win. Or better yet, a 34-0 win and the Corbin Rules Commander-in-Chief trophy in hand. Nice. Nice. Okay. I can root for you for that. Okay. Good. Okay. <laughs> All right. So now we have to pick the college football playoffs. A little bit early here. A lot of the hype, of course, is just beginning. Uh, but we've got Alabama versus Cincinnati. In the first semifinal, Michigan versus Georgia in the second. Alabama is a two-touchdown favorite, at least in the early line. That may move in the next few weeks, but that's where it stands right now. What do you think the outcome is going to be New Year's Eve, Alabama versus Cincinnati? I think Alabama wins. I I don't think they cover the spread, though. I think Cincinnati will give them a a game. Uh, I'd say something like uh, 30-22, 30-21, somewhere in there. Okay. All right. I'll put you down for 22 because that would be very interesting if it came out to 22. So um, I'm going to say Alabama does cover, but just barely, I think it's going to be a respectable showing from Cincinnati. I don't think there's any sense of, well, they didn't belong on the same field. I'm going to say an Alabama 34, 17 kind of victory. All right. So semifinal two, Michigan versus Georgia, uh, Georgia, the Lions moved around a little bit, but it, Georgia's favored by about nine points over Michigan, despite their loss to Alabama in the SEC championship game. I have a hard time believing that. I Nine points is crazy, especially I just can't get the memory of Michigan steamrolling Ohio State out of my mind. So um, I'm going to say that, uh, that Michigan does not win that game, but that it is a close game. I'm going to put Georgia 27, Michigan 24. I'm going to take the same score, but reverse it. I think Michigan does win this game. It'll be, it'll be an upset, but I don't think a huge upset. I think it's possible that Alabama revealed some things about Georgia in their game that uh, maybe unlocked the defense just a little bit. Georgia's defense has been so dominant this year, but Alabama was able to score quite freely on them. And it wouldn't surprise me if that, it's something that Michigan can can draw upon as they prepare for the game. So I think Michigan squeaks it out. It'll certainly be the better of the two games, I think, and set up for a very interesting national championship game. So I've got Alabama against Michigan. Dave, you've got Alabama against Georgia. Who wins the national championship? I think Alabama 27 to 21. So okay. a closer game than, than the first time around. Uh, Georgia does a better job 
uh, taking care of the Alabama offense, but Alabama uh, wins it in the end. All right. Well, that's going to give you a lot of bragging rights in your area. If, if that's, that's right. the case, since you've attached yourself to the Alabama bandwagon, at least at the beginning of this year, yeah, there are three of us on campus that are Alabama fans. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Anyone who's actually gone to Alabama or any Alabama connections? No, uh, Nick. Well, yes, actually one, one, one person. Yeah. has gone to Alabama. The other is just a fan of Nick Saban. So. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's fair enough. So I'm going to take Alabama as well in the final, but I think it's going to be a blowout 42 to 10 victory for Alabama over Michigan. All right. Well, thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also contact us at democracy in America today at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you next week. <laughs>